Hello, everybody. Um, welcome to another episode of the Madams Cast. This is becoming a bit of a habit. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode, if you listened to it, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it, even if you didn't listen to it. Thanks for tuning in this week. Usual housekeeping request. When you share this brilliant and entertaining foodie podcast with your friends, please ask them to download it rather than stream it so that it helps us to get more visibility so that more people can find the Madam's Cast more easily. You don't have to do that. That's just a favour I'm asking of you. And I think I like to think at least that generally the listeners of the Madam's Cast are a, a nice bunch of folk uh, and who would comply. So this week, I'm very excited. We've got another nominated entry. So this little nomination thing that I set up at the beginning of the Madam's Cast has started to work out quite well. Drove Baker recommended this fellow to come and join us. Um, and so without any further ado, because I'd rather he introduced himself than I introduced him, let's see if he's there. Alex Rushmer, are you available? I am here and hearing you loud and clear, Tim. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me on. Oh, well, I feel like we've mugged you on a little bit, <laughs> um, but but it is a delight to, to have you down at the end of the old internet line there, um, and I'm really looking forward to having a chat with you, Alex. Um, I, I can, let's start with some background, because, yeah. you know, obviously I know who you are, I've been Googling and search engineering around the place, and I just wondered if you could give us a short synopsis of who you are and why I want to talk to you about food. Uh, I can I can fill in any blanks that you might have. Certainly, yeah. So um, my name is Alex Rushmer. I am currently uh, the uh, joint chef owner of a restaurant in Cambridge called Vandalisle. Uh, prior to that, I ran a, a gastro pub out in the Cambridgeshire countryside that was called The Hole in the Wall. Um, was named one of the Sunday Times top 100 restaurants in the UK back in 2017. Um, nice. Before that, I was a contestant on the sixth series of Amateur MasterChef. Um, and then before that, I was a sort of jobbing freelance food writer, getting work where I could. So I came to the industry late, um, but once I once I started cooking, once I had my first taste of, of the professional kitchen, which was when, when I was filming MasterChef, um, that was it. I was hooked. Uh, and I've now been uh, in the industry. I've been a professional chef for uh, around about 10 years. Wow, 10 years. And you still sound enthusiastic. That's brilliant. Um MasterChef, was that fun? It looks fun from the outside. I just, I wonder how much fun it actually is. Uh, it was, it was terrific amounts of fun. It really, really was. Uh, it was, it was tough. There were some very, very long days. And uh, as, as you probably know, Tim, uh, filming is nowhere near as glamorous as people seem to think it is. There's an awful lot of waiting around. Um, but I think one of the reasons, one of the reasons MasterChef has, has sort of endured, I think we've just watched the 16th series. So it's a full 10 years since I was a contestant. Um, is that there's still an integrity to it. There's still an honesty to it. It's not necessarily about personalities. It's not necessarily about creating narratives or you know, ridiculous story arcs for people. It really is just about the food. Um, and I think one of the reasons that it has been so successful for so long uh, is that um, the food is still, still front and centre to it. And that's one of the reasons... I applied to go on and that's one of the reasons that I think the whole thing has been so so successful. Brilliant. Well I mean food is just such a massive subject isn't it and I, you know this relentless interest uh, by the media in food is just an extension of the human interest in food. We all have to eat it's one common ground that more or less everybody shares um, and some people obviously look at food just purely as calories in over energy out and that's that's up to them and I think um, a bit of a shame but there are people out there that view food purely as fuel and you know they're entitled to do that mm. um, but I think you're right I think that is that is potentially why it's so enduring as a show as a format but uh, yeah I can imagine it was exhausting and how many times do you have to film the same bit of salt going on the same bit of fish well to actually the, the the one bit where they where they don't take and retake is is during the challenges um, so uh, everything that you see as a viewer uh, is all done in, in pretty much in real time. So the the, the crew are very good at, at catching the, the, the dramatic moments, uh, for example. 
um, what what you have to film over and over again is is the the walking shots. They become sort of um, a significant a significant aspect of your of your daily experience whilst filming MasterChef. Is is you sort of walking to a kitchen, or you walking away from a kitchen, or you walking to the studio or away from the studio. So that was the the bit that got uh, a little bit repetitive. But the the actual cooking, the actual challenges, um, they're, they're edited obviously. Um, but they are a very, very accurate representation of what actually happens in the studio or in the or in the kitchens. Well, there you go. You heard it here first, ladies and gents. It's 100% genuine MasterChef cook a long time. Um, brilliant. And then one last little question um, for you. Um, we norm- and then we'll have a few sort of personal things because I always like to know what people's genuine situations are. But did you say the name of your restaurant was Vandalal? Uh, my restaurant is called Vandalile, yes. Okay. And what does that mean? Sorry, Tim, I lost you for a minute there. Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, what does that mean? What is Vandalile? Uh, Vandalile is, well, it's named after a song by a band that I am a, a particular fan of, a band called The National, uh, who are uh, based over in the States. Um, but they've been a, a favourite of mine for quite some time about the last 10 years or so and when I was naming the restaurant or when me and my business partner were naming the restaurant we wanted something that had a level of ambiguity to it uh, but also had a personal connection I didn't like the idea of naming it after the street or after an ingredient or after one of our names so we came up with this with this idea of, of a name that, that actually doesn't mean anything and that's the that's the whole point um Matt, who's the the singer of the National, has been interviewed about this, and he said he wanted a word that sounded nice, um, but was deliberate in its ambiguity. So, my my thinking was, you know, we're we're a restaurant that that doesn't really have a, a fixed menu and has quite a fluid identity and is quite sort of easygoing, and and having a name that was deliberately ambiguous but also had a personal connection. Uh, was quite important, so so I actually wrote to the management, the band's management. Um, so it was named Vandalile with the blessing of the national. So I was uh, super super happy about that. Mm, I've got a bit of cosmic trouble for you with that one though, because now that it's a restaurant, it's going to acquire a meaning, and then it's <laughs> going to become a paradoxical explosion of disaster because the name that didn't have a meaning was deliberately selected because its lack of meaning now has a meaning by the very fact you've given it the name. And then you, me, Heisenberg, Schrodinger, we've all got to go and sit in a shed and worry about it. <laughs> Schrodinger's restaurant. Schrodinger's nameless yeah. restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've been... We've, <laughs> we've been even more ambiguous because the, the restaurant doesn't actually have a sign. Um, it was it was something that, uh, that, that just kept falling down our to-do list. Uh, and now after 18 months, it, it's sort of become the restaurant without the sign. So we're, we're, we're called Vandalile at the moment. But, um, you know, if, if it gets too much of a, a, of a philosophical uh, cul-de-sac, then uh, we might have to change that. So. <laughs> oh, that's absolutely brilliant. That's great. Oh, I like that. It's That's charming on all levels. Um, it really is. Um, great. OK. Um, and now, Alex, you know, boring old sort of, I, I don't know whether you used to read smash hits. And I know I didn't. But I mean, I do like the idea of Alex Rushler. OK. Um, estimated or at least public age, married or not married, children, no children. And obviously you live in Cambridge. So we've got that bit now. Yeah, live in Cambridge. I am. Uh, I'm currently 37 years old. Uh, I've been married to my wonderful, understanding, and very beautiful wife Charlotte uh, for just over five years. We've been together for about 12 years. Um, we met uh, at university and then got together a couple of years after we both graduated. Nice. Um, uh, I studied. I studied politics. Uh, I've got a, a degree in political sciences from uh, the University of Cambridge uh, and then originally from Manchester, but settled in Cambridge um, just a couple of years after graduating. Um, mm-hmm. Had a year working in London. Um, I did try sort of tentatively to get a job in politics and I'm increasingly grateful and thankful that, that that's not a road that I went down. Um, <laughs> I actually I actually ended up working because I was short. I moved to London without a job and, and, and sort of failed to get a job in Westminster. Uh, so I ended up working in a, in a really cute little cookware shop just off Chiswick High Road. Um, and that was the that was the start of 
that was the start of the food career, really. I sort of padded around the the, the periphery of, of food for a couple of years and then um, had one glass of wine too many on a Sunday evening um, and filled in the application for MasterChef. And, and that really was the, the start of the roller coaster. Um, and here we are 10 years later, uh, a, a restaurant in, in central Cambridge that until four months ago um, was serving 100 diners a week uh, a, a sort of fixed, a fixed uh, vegetable focused menu, um, nice. fully, uh, fully designed around sustainability. I suppose that was our. I know it's a real buzzword at the moment, but that was our, 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 our sort of mo. Um, mm-hmm. And then we had to change our business model pretty much overnight. So we are now uh, Vandalal is now a takeaway. Um, we, we, we switched uh, before lockdown, actually. We did our last service on the 14th of March, Saturday the 14th of March, which was a year to the day that we did our first service. It was our, the anniversary of our, of our opening. Oh, um, and we've spent the last three and a half months now, I think, um, cooking takeaway food. So it's been a real, it's been a real adventure. Um, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just super grateful that, uh, that I still get to cook, that I actually get to cook for more people on a weekly basis than I used to, um, that I can still go to work, uh, and I've still got the majority of my incredible team, um, working, working with me and, um, you know, we're all, we're all happy, healthy, sane and, and solvent, which I think is, you know, it's not a bad it's not a bad tick list given the, the current global situation. Oh, if you're going to attribute all of that to one glass of wine too many, thank God you had an extra <laughs> glass of wine. I mean, you know, what a brilliant, if ever there were a reason to encourage people to just occasionally have one more glass of wine, <laughs> that, then this is a story I shall use. Um, definitely. Okay, Alex, that's a fantastic introduction. We all now feel like we know who you are and the sort of general vibe of what you're all about. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the takeaway scenario, but perhaps we can wedge that in later or at a later date. But we need to, at this point, dive into the main part of the Madam's Cast format. And you need to give me the three things you would like to change about the world of food. Now, that is a that's a big brief, right? That is a wide target to hit. And it's, it's... (laughs) <laughs> there's, there's been a lot of thought about this over the last week or so i have to say oh good for you good for you oh well that's that's great because i'm really excited so i'm i am not even i'm going to shut up and i'm going to let you get on with point number one <laughs> so i i was i was toying with the idea of whether or not to to go big global situations because uh, because of the, the current big global situation or whether or not to be local and I was batting a few ideas around and I thought you know is it is it time to take on the 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 little red book is it time to try and put the boot into the Michelin guide um and that was one potential avenue I thought uh, about pursuing but really given the current situation I can't see any any relevance in in that uh, particular sacred cow at the moment so actually I'm starting off with um smaller supply chains and I think one positive, uh, one positive thing that has come out of, of the, the corona crisis over the last few weeks is an increasing awareness, particularly an awareness amongst the consumer, the end consumer, uh, about how important those small supply chains can be and the importance of having a connection or as close a connection as possible with the individual producers, farmers, artisans, um, and and makers of of the product. Uh, I've I've spent you know, we we try as much as possible at the restaurant um, to to use local suppliers, local farmers, and one thing that I've that I've noticed uh, by talking to them is that actually that initial fear, that absolute fear that that took hold right at the start of lockdown when restaurants pubs bars were ordered to close um what on earth are the suppliers going to do you know what the restaurants are going to do is one question but goodness me 
there is a significant knock-on effect um, mm. where there's there's tens and tens of thousands of pounds of revenue that were not going to the suppliers. Um, but that's sort of for for, for a lot of uh, a lot of the guys I work with. Um, that was a it was a terrifying hiccup, but a very short-lived one, and they found that they were able to get their message and their product direct to the end consumer in a series of, of brilliant and innovative and cost-effective ways. Yeah. And essentially, even if, even if everything went back to normal tomorrow, even if restaurants and, and bars and pubs and cafes were open tomorrow, and the, all the suppliers came back on board and everything was at, at, at the same level as it was before uh, before COVID, even if a small fraction of those people who have discovered the joy of the local butcher and who have discovered the genius of the local brewer or have discovered how delicious fresh vegetables straight out of the ground at a farm five miles away taste, even if a tiny fraction of those people continue to use that those instead of going to the supermarket, um, I think it's a I think it's a win and I think it's a positive and I think it's something that um, that that is actually a, a one small ray of light in this whole utter shit show that we're that we're going through at the moment. And you know, it's a it's a brilliant one, isn't it? I mean, for so many reasons, keeping that sort of localism happening which I think a lot of good chefs are now switching on to in terms of working more and more closely with local suppliers and even, you know, reducing the, um, the area that would be considered as local, if you like, and sort of micro, yeah. uh, microtizing that a little bit um, is, is amazing. But you're right, these, if, if, for me, the realisation that something is better than it was comes from experience. And it's just that tasting that, and looking at it and then also i mean one for me is always a, a no-brainer is that if you give someone a little bag of salad from the local organic grower or the local market garden and they pop it in their fridge and forget about it for five days they take mm. it out and go oh it's still in perfect nick it's not turned to compost <laughs> uh, exactly ex exactly and that potential fear of the assumed extra cost perhaps of buying something at its real value close to source is more than made up for not only by the sort of slightly ephemeral value of the taste but certainly by the nutritional value and yeah. by the longevity of the product if it's stored you know in a, in a reasonably half useful way oh that is a that's a great point to make um and there's a huge amount in it but in and of itself it's very simple and i like the concise way that you've put smaller supply chains that's well, that, that, the, the food, the food system, the global food system is is one that is incredibly complex, incredibly bloated, um, and it's 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 very much at the at the forefront of my mind at the moment because coupled with this, there's 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 negotiations going on uh, between between our government here in the UK and uh, a, a trade negotiation going on with the United States of America, which which personally fills me with absolute dread um and i've sort of quietly but quite vocally been been campaigning against against any deregulation or any reduction in uk food standards and mm. and i think it's i think it's quite telling that on the one side we've got this big story about hormone injected beef and chlorine washed chicken and hormone injected pork uh, and really quite appalling food standards that okay the government is saying that um that it's not something that they're willing to accept as part of a trade deal um but you know i remain to be to be convinced whether or not that is going to be the case or whether or not in the next 18 months we are going to see uh, potentially unlabeled uh, american produce on our supermarket shelves in some form or another and sort of juxtaposing that with this huge and swift awareness of of uh, of localism 
um, this surge in people's in consumers interest in buying local I mean it's something that as chefs I think uh, I know you've you've been banging that drum for many years Tim um, but actually getting that message across and out of professional kitchens and into the, the general atmosphere uh, I think the last three months has done an incredible amount for that message mm. yeah I completely agree I completely agree and it you know as you say, I mean, I remain sceptical as to whether the, you know, the, the promised non-erosion of the UK food standards um, remains off the table. I mean, I, you know, I've been, um, I've been like yourself, probably a little bit too cynical about the government, but um, any government, I would say, personally, but there we go. Mm. Um, okay, Alex, fantastic. Um, and we're encapsulating all of that into point number one. <laughs> that, was, that was point number one. <laughs> And we, and to be honest, to go all sort of corporate, you know, boardroom speak on you, we've been fairly helicopter on that. We've not, we've not zoomed in a lot. So um, I think I quite like it. I, I quite like that as an entity in the way that it is. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a, there's an argument, isn't there? There's an argument out there that sort of says, well, look, you know, you're being a bit silly about the chlorine wash chicken thing because mm. we're only doing that as an extra level of food safety which you don't have in existence in the uk because we're more concerned about campfire bacter or clostridium perfidus or whatever the particular bug is that they're bleaching it to get rid of yeah and so, no hold on a minute the reason that you're doing it is because your initial risk is so much higher because your farming standards are so much lower that you've had to do it the, otherwise this... you know <coughs> excuse me i mean we've been washing salad commercials bags of salad in this country that are labeled ready to eat have all been washed with bleach so that's not really the issue here the issue that we're concerned about is this this exporting of poor animal welfare and dreadful environmental standards somewhere else for the want of making money it doesn't make any sense yeah this is this is precisely this is precisely the problem and and uh, the chlorine washing thing is uh, i mean that's the headline grabber yeah um, yeah but it's fairly easy to uh, as an argument somebody who's in favor of of lower regulation they can they say precisely what what you just said yeah we've been washing bag salad and chlorine for years no one thinks twice about jumping into a swimming pool uh, and it makes your it makes your meat safer the chlorine is not the issue the issue uh, for me the bigger the bigger issue is animal welfare and um, we've we've spent the last uh, 50 years improving animal welfare in this country to the extent where you know salmonella has been eradicated from the UK egg industry um, we're increasingly aware of you know I don't think it's going to be a long long time before we can't buy battery battery eggs or battery chicken in this country there is a an increasing groundswell uh, in favor of, of banning battery farming for chickens altogether we look across to even even in Europe, we 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 bulk at some of the standards in in the Danish pork industry, for example. We have these incredibly high standards for animal welfare that we've been working towards for for many many decades, and the idea that they can be eradicated overnight um, through this through this trade deal, which you know. I, I too am fairly cynical about the the, the, the reasons for, for the government's desire to, um, uh, to 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 secure a trade deal, um, and the, the the notion that they could be eradicated overnight. I think it's I think it's terrible. I think it's terrible for the UK food industry. I think it's terrible for the UK farming industry, um, yeah. and. The, as, as we saw with the horse meat scandal, uh, whenever that was, a couple of years ago, um, the, the burden of this will fall on lower income households. Uh, and there's the, there's the knock on health issues that we, that we just, we have no idea about. Well, we, actually we do, because one in six Americans gets food poisoning every year, uh, which is a phenomenal number of people. We've, you know, we've done so well to, to, to eradicate foodborne illness as much as we possibly can uh, in, in, in the United Kingdom. And, you know, we all get a dicky tummy every now and again for whatever reason. But one in six getting food poisoning every year, that's not a situation that I think is acceptable. And nor do I think it's something that we should be, uh, we, sh we should be aiming towards. Yeah, when you, when you have a, a 
social culture that renames E. coli poisoning hamburger sickness, you know, <laughs> you know, there's a problem somewhere. Right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, 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 okay. Enough, uh, enough of that. Let's let's tentatively slip out of pond number one and immerse <laughs> in pond number two. I, I for one, am hoping it's full of bleach so that I come out smelling like roses. Uh... <laughs> yeah, maybe <laughs> we'll come out lemony, lemony fresh. It's another simple one, actually. Um, I think we should eat less meat. It's kind of thematic. Uh, and we've, we've, we've slipped from, from the United States food industry into something that I think affects us all. But um, for various reasons, environmental, uh, for health reasons, for animal welfare issues... I think we should all be trying to eat less animal products uh, or animal protein. Um, okay. My uh, and, and consequently, because of that, we need to eat more vegetables. We need to eat more seasonal vegetables, um, and we need to shift the balance of our diets um, back towards a level that is sustainable. Um, my my restaurant Vandalaya was never it was never set up. As a vegetarian restaurant and it's not a vegetarian restaurant i categorically state that at every available opportunity um, in fact our our business plan made no mention of of being uh vegetable uh vegetable led um we've majored on the idea of sustainability um, and in fact some of our sample menus from our very first business plan do include uh high welfare meat and quite a lot of game actually yeah. Um, having said that, our opening menu was entirely vegetarian. We found some incredible local suppliers. Uh, we opened in the spring, um, so we had a good six-month uh, run-up uh, in which to sort of play around with, with some ideas. And we opened with a vegetarian menu because um, we actually wanted to make it easier for the kitchen. Um Something that that restaurants up and down the restaurants and chefs up and down the country will will know is that whatever your menu, you have to make concessions and changes for a number of different dietary restrictions and requirements. And we thought actually the easiest way to to do our soft launch in our initial couple of months uh, was to make sure that our menu was accessible to as many people as possible. So we made it vegetarian. Um, after two months of two months of the opening menu menus, uh, we were well into the, the height of the summer, uh, and again working with with two or three incredible growers locally, mm-hmm. um, and found no no need to to change the menu um, in terms of adding uh, any meat or fish uh, to it and then we'd done six months and we sort of set ourselves a challenge do we think we can go a year can we do a year with with only cooking vegetables and uh, and fruit and pulses and and actually it opened our eyes to the most incredible suppliers produce and techniques as well so we had to develop techniques that allowed us to not not emulate meats that's never been my desire as a as a chef that that concentrates in cooking um plant-based menus it's never been my desire to try and recreate fish or recreate meats you know that's a different conversation that's that's sort of beyond meat impossible burger clean meat technologies that's a completely different conversation yeah um but our desire in creating menus was always to showcase the vegetables in the in in the best possible way but also to make sure that at the end of the uh, five course plus extras tasting menu, the diner was uh, satisfied, sated, happy. Um, and the comment that we got when, when we were still a restaurant, um, the, comment, the comment that we got most often was, you know, I didn't even notice that there was no meat or fish on the menu. And it was only when I looked at the menu at the end of the meal, there was a realization. And the more we got this feedback, the more we had this sort of desire to 
set ourselves the challenge of of not you know of, of trying to showcase vegetables in a way that I don't think has been done enough or has been done often enough in enough restaurants. So we we developed techniques and methods for making reductions and and jus and you know very very hearty, um, rich umami, uh, umami rich and deep flavors with vegetables that you know I'd never I'd never dreamed of before. And we came across products like you know seaweed is a great is a great thing to mm-hmm. use for for, yeah. get, for getting those flavors in, um, but locally we we discovered something called Carlin peas. Oh, and, and oh all about Carlin peas. They are just the most incredible, versatile ingredient. Incredibly high in protein, really rich, really meaty, and you know we've oh my god we've stuck them in everything. We've we've done we've done chilies, uh, we've done ragus, we've done Carlin peas by themselves, we've done a Carlin peas jus, we've we've done soups and gravies and all sorts. Um, and this is just one example of of an ingredient that. I don't think we would have discovered as a as a restaurant had we not sort of set ourselves these uh, these parameters with which to cook by. Yeah, and yeah. I think as as any any restaurant any chef that is is happy to put sustainability right at the top of their business model. I'm not saying it's impossible to have a menu that that features uh, meat or fish. Uh, on there, but I think it's more difficult. Agreed, so. agreed. And uh, just to interrupt very quickly, I, just because I, I I love a Carlin P, I'm with you on it. Can I make a stab in the dark that they were provided for you by a chap named Josiah who has a company named Hobmadots? You would be absolutely correct. Oh, and, um, love it when I'm right. <laughs> so, so these guys, Hobmadots, for anybody that hasn't come across these guys, I I found them through a I think through an article in the Guardian, which was about the UK's very first commercially viable crop of chickpeas. So yeah, firstly, brilliant. We're growing chickpeas in the UK, actually not too far away from where I am. They're in they're in Suffolk. They're just over the border from me. Um, and then I sort of started digging around in their range, and they they have the most amazing range of of. British grown pulses, um, some of which are, are carlin peas, but they also do these awesome sort of umami pastes and fermented barleys, and they are just uh, you know about as close as you can get to an English miso, I suppose. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. That that um, that uh, fava bean uh, fermented fava bean paste that they do is mind blowingly good. It is seriously delicious uh we've been doing we've been doing a, a dish on the last takeaway menu so we we run our menus for two weeks now um and then we change them on a fortnightly basis uh, but we were doing a, a dish of, of locally grown hispy cabbage um that we were roasting with um with an xo sauce um so sort of real uh chinese influence in the in the dish yeah. um but instead of using uh dried scallops uh or or or, or animal products we were using the fermented uh, the fermented fava beans and we were using shiitake mushrooms and we were getting the the sort of the depth of flavor the saltiness the richness and the and the umami from from those ingredients instead and you know that 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 now we're now being able to use locally grown ingredients to create a dish that has its origins thousands of miles away um but it's, it's, it's an homage to something that that just I would not have thought about cooking eighteen months ago or so. So brilliant, 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 brilliant. brilliant. I love that. I love the journey from the concept of putting sustainability there to your particular chosen personal endpoint or uh, current endpoint. Obviously, mm. you're going to progress from there. I really, I really like that and I admire it. And I think the temptation as a cook is you inherit a lot of stuff as a cook from the people who teach you to cook and from you know the restaurants you work in. And yeah. what you don't realise that along with those dishes, you're acquiring a set of preconceptions. And it wasn't for me until I went to work at River Cottage that I released some of those shackles on my brain. Mm. And one of them for me was cream. We were using, um, I'm sorry, it's a very quick story. We were using uh, double 
organic cream from Riverford Dairy. And it was brilliant stuff. But we were getting through gallons of it. I mean, gallons of it. And I was like, hang on a minute. You know, this is just madness. And everything was starting to taste of cream because everything had cream in it. And I was like, Tim, we don't need to do this. (laughs) We don't need to do this. Let's start taking it out. And then after I'd reduced the cream consumption significantly, I started reducing the butter consumption, much to the chagrin of my (laughs) sous chef at the time, who was like, well, how am I going to do mashed potatoes without 60% butter? And I was like, oh, we can do them occasionally, but let's try and rein it in a little bit. Uh, And I just, instilling those challenges are brilliant. But the final thing here is to give you a warning. You mentioned shiitake mushrooms. Don't start me on mushrooms. We haven't got time enough in the universe. (laughs) Well, those are brilliant points, Alex. I really like the smaller supply chain and the eat less meat, and I've enjoyed discussing them with you. You've got one uh, one last thing you can do, though. So do you want to give it to us? Okay, this is um, sort of more on a more professional level. Um, I think more restaurants should operate with open kitchens. So that is the that is that is my little manifesto. That's my short manifesto. Um, to go into a little bit more depth, um, we hear an awful lot about what it is like in the trenches, so to speak, um, and chefing as an industry for many many years since before Escoffier uh, has been something that that is sort of has a militaristic undertones, certainly, if not militaristic overtones. Mm. You look at the brigade system, for example, that, that is military in its in its precision and in its uh, in its design. Um, sort of toxic environments that that, that breed bullying cultures and unhealthy workplaces and unhealthy workplace practices um, that create physical and literal barriers between the back of the house and the front of house and create physical and literal barriers between the chefs who are cooking the food and the customers who are eating the food. And what I love is this trend for openness and honesty and calmness and a much more meditative and friendlier approach to the industry that that we know that we know and love i've been guilty certainly myself of not being the most cheerful person in the kitchen from time to time and i think probably quite a bit of that was inherited have you got i mean what's your technique when stuff gets stressful how do you shut that down and step outside of it and remain calm uh I'm I'm very fortunate um, that um, Lawrence and myself, uh, Lawrence is my business partner, we've opened the restaurant together. We've worked together for about the last seven years or so. And um, the way that we approach the menu design and cooking and and how service works means that really there aren't any pinch points um, during service. Occasionally something something goes wrong and... um, but being up, being on stage, you know, essentially we're we're on stage, and every night we have to put on this this show for for twenty six twenty six people, um, and I think part of part of that is having that open kitchen, and, and people like to see what's what's going on. Um, I don't know what the answer is to to dealing with dealing with stress in those environments, but I think an awful lot. Of, of what happens um, happens because it's behind closed doors and if you take down the, the walls and open the doors you don't allow for an environment in which those things are acceptable to take place um, and I've, I've been I've been there too and you know generally I'm a very very calm person but sometimes the level of stress in a kitchen becomes uh, becomes a little bit too much, too much to take. But if if the if the the need to actually stop and take a breath and think about your environment, you know, it's a well it's a well worn psychological technique for, for calming down and climbing off a ledge and, and actually just stopping and taking a breath. And if you realise that you are that you are on stage and that you have to maintain a level of professionalism, not just for your team, not just for the waiting staff who you're working with, but also for the customers who you are cooking for, 
um, I think naturally there is a there, there is that uh, sort of injection of of calm that comes just through through situation. Um, there, there will be there, there are times when things get difficult and things get stressful, but that doesn't, as far as I'm concerned, as far as any kitchen that I'm working in is concerned, that doesn't make it excusable to to to, to shout and swear and pull somebody out and bully and create an environment that isn't conducive to to creativity and and uh, team led um, situation. Uh, I just think it's a, I think it's an outdated, outmoded, uh, unfair environment, and it's not one that I want to have any any part in. To be perfectly honest with you. Great, and and it, ultimately it will kill the industry if we don't entirely root it out and get rid of it. Because why on earth would anyone want to to go through that? You know, I really. I really sympathise. I mean, I certainly caught the tail end of hardcore kitchens uh, through London, um, and yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm sure. And it's yeah. and it's it's not nice. And I can't think anybody works works at their best when they're when they've got their their, their sous chef or the head chef staring over their shoulder, waiting, just actually waiting for you to put one make one tiny mistake or put one finger in the wrong place and and suddenly you're being bawled out publicly and um yeah that's not that's not a, an environment that fosters uh, a, a friendly working environment at all so I, I think you know more more openness and and actually historically that divide between uh, between kitchen and front of house is always something that's that there's that's i've worked in kitchens where there's been an us and them attitude and you know the front of house are always trying to put the kitchen in the weeds and the kitchen are always trying to screw up front of house service and you know actually that's that's ridiculous we're all in yeah. we're all in the business of hospitality it's not unusual for the chefs in in our kitchen to take the food to the tables it's not unusual for the guys front of house to sometimes come in the kitchen and finish a plate. It's it, it's we're all pulling in the same direction, and the more the customer can see that, the better it is for their experience. The better it is for the working environment, and and the the more chance we have of encouraging young enthusiastic people of coming into the industry. We we all know about the skills shortage. Skills shortage is is only going to get worse after Brexit. Um, we're, we're massively under understaffed as an industry and that's only going to get far far worse if if the reputation of the industry is one where you sort of go in at 16 and and you get bullied and harassed and and whipped through it and there's a sort of process of attrition whereby only the strongest that make it that sort of darwinian approach to, to to working life in the kitchen i think is i think is appalling i think it's outdated uh, and i think it needs to change and one way to do that is by literally breaking down those walls between the kitchen and the dining room yeah yeah i agree well alex one thing that's come very clear to me uh, if i hadn't already picked it up from point one and two is that you are a visionary and uh, i i applaud you i i couldn't i couldn't agree with that anymore um why should anyone have to go to work and feel like that? Absolutely not. And then ultimately you end up with poor food because that resentment, that anger, that fear, that exhaustion and everything else piles all up into the end product. Yep. And you end up with a bitter broth. Um, wow. That, what a great, I mean, despite a few technical hiccups, what a great, what a great three points. And, <laughs> and fantastic cast. I, I've genuinely enjoyed having you, having you on. I, I, the best thing about this podcast from my personal point of view is that I'm making so many new contacts with people who I really respect the way they're thinking. So thanks very much for sharing your points with us. Well, thank you. Um, thank you for the invite. It's, um, you know, I've, I've, I've watched your, I've watched your, your progress and your, uh, your appearances on various TV shows over the years and always admired what you do. So it's lovely to be able to have a proper, proper chat with you, Tim. Oh, mate, that's very nice of you to say. Thank you very much. Um, oh, I'm blushing now, down at this end. Um, so the final part of the Madam's Cast is very lighthearted and fun, but it's also an opportunity for us to all talk about um, our cookbook that we love the most or our food book that we love the most because, hey, that's something we just need to get out there. So you've got three final jobs before I allow you to go free into the rest of your life. 
and they are i'd like you to give me your desert island food book what you would have to drink while you read it and then i would like you to nominate someone to come on the cast next please okay so i've i've got i've got one food book written down but i don't think that's the one i'm going to share with you actually um because oh. i've had a i've had another thought whilst we've actually been talking and um i am going to take i'm going to take an anthony bourdain book um, but it's not going to be the Anthony Bourdain book that, uh, that, that that has become the chef's bible. I'm going to take his second book, which is called A Cook's Tour. And um, Cook's Tour is, uh, I think that is actually the genesis point of when I decided to start working in food. And I remember very, very clearly picking it up in a actually a discount bookshop in the centre of Cambridge, um, during my graduation week, uh, way back in 2005, and I hadn't heard of I hadn't heard of this guy. In fact, I didn't I didn't even know how to pronounce his name properly. And for for years, he was I just presumed he was French, and he was Anthony Bourdain. Um, and it was only when I sort of started watching his his TV shows and consuming more of his uh, peerless, incredible, and truly inspirational output um did i realize that he was a sort of hard living uh new yorker um but i think cook's tour just epitomizes more than anything what bourdain the much much missed bourdain brought to the world and more than anything he he made the world a smaller place and he knew fundamentally what it was to be a guest in somebody's house, somebody's restaurant, yeah. somebody's country. Yeah. He exuded just this fearsome thirst for knowledge, coupled with an incredible respect for the human and the human condition. And I think it was that in his writing that I found so infectious. And that, when I read A Cook's Tour, that was the point I realised that food could be more than something that was just what was on the plate. Yeah. And I realised that food could be a way to connect with people. And every adventure I've had, right, you know, from from going on MasterChef to cooking for uh, the Maharaja in Rajasthan to opening a restaurant to cooking. Um, in a in a mountaintop lodge in Ethiopia's Simeon Mountains, I think I can trace to the point at which I started reading Anthony Bourdain. So that is the book that I will take to the desert island with me. Fantastic. It is a great choice and a great book and everyone takes something else from it. It is one of those that crops up. Hasn't cropped up on the podcast yet, so you're the first one to bring that up, which is <laughs> which is good. But it is a it is a book that, you know, foodie people sort of look at each other and go oh this could be a long conversation <laughs> yeah 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 I, I think i think uh i think if we weren't on a time limit we could probably talk about bourdain and and bourdain's work and his writing for for about three weeks to be honest with you just yeah set, yeah yeah settle in with uh settling with some beers and and just go crazy well like all great writers he evokes conversation right and and it's certainly evoking yeah and viewpoint and, and once you tie into that then you start to sort of assess your own viewpoints and what they're based on and that's a very a very human talent mm. uh, what are you gonna what are you gonna sip while you're reading it well open bar i'm gonna go i'm gonna go to the wine fridge and i'm gonna keep it classic and i'm gonna take a bottle of something white and something from burgundy um and i don't mind whether it's uh, you know anything from a macon village right up to a grand cru Chablis or Merceau. I just think um, I think Chardonnay is my favourite grape, and I think the best expression of Chardonnay still comes from Burgundy. Um, so, to be honest with you, any bottle of, of something uh, from white and from Burgundy is is going to go brilliant, as long as I've got an ice bucket to keep it cool. Uh, think... <laughs> yeah, fine. No I'm not having you drinking tepid white wine. Uh, absolutely not. Um, yeah, you can have both of those things, and that is fine by me. Um, brilliant, brilliant. Oh, what a great combination. Yeah, something intrinsically delicious about just a simple glass of very well-made white burgundy. There really is, yeah. And then some crimes of 
passion have been committed in the name of the Chardonnay grape over the years, particularly um, outside of Europe. And uh, it's nice to hear you exonerating it in the way it should be. So well done you. Um, who are you going to nominate? Well, I think I think the circle should be completed. So having um, have, now that you've spoken to both Drew and myself, uh, I would like to nominate uh, Tim Kinnaird, who was a finalist alongside uh, the two of us in MasterChef way back in two thousand and ten. Um, he is now an incredibly skilled um, pastry chef. Uh, runs a lovely company uh, in Norwich called Macarons and More. Um, and has remained, uh, along with Drew, a very, very dear friend ever since we first met uh, during those, those crazy days on the set of MasterChef uh, 10 years ago. So I would love for you to have a conversation with Tim. Oh, friendships forged in kitchens can be lifelong. I have a very dear friend who lives in Sweden and we, we forged our friendship in a kitchen and yeah, I, I know the depth of understanding there. So, Tim Kinnard. Well, I um, Kinnard. How, how am I spelling it? Let me get Kinnard. K I double N A I R D. A I R D. Tim Kinnard. Well, I look forward to getting in touch with him and badgering him into coming. He's got to come on. My name's Tim. His name's Tim. That's got to happen. We'll make it that, work. That, that's enough of a reason in itself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's an idea for another podcast. I'm just going to make a few people call Tim about whatever they want to talk about. <laughs> uh, there's something a bit too Dave Gorman about that as a concept. Um, Alex, thanks again, man, for coming on. That's so cool. Uh, I've really enjoyed the chat. I know that I've made a new friend and I'm really looking forward to editing the pod and putting it together so that everyone can listen in and, and enjoy your brilliant, eloquently put points and thoughts. And we've, you know, we've skimmed the surface. That's a, that's the problem with the, the broad remit of the Madam's cast is we're just skimming the surface all the time, but I, I've really enjoyed looking into your points with you and I, I can't wait to talk to you again sometime. Thank you so much. It has been a real pleasure. It's really, it's really wonderful to talk all things food uh, with someone who is uh, who is so interested and passionate. So thanks very much for uh, for the invitation, Tim. Oh, you're so welcome. All right, mate. All the best. Catch you later. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>